I'm still prefer to throw myself at the fallibility of that decision making and then end up in the sort of world where it's an algorithm without any empathy that's making those decisions. I think that's that's sort of world that most of us would like not to be in. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we learn from Toby Walsh. Toby is chief scientist at unsw.ai, which is the University of New South Wales' new AI institute. He is laureate fellow and scientia professor of artificial intelligence at UNSW. His many, many honors include winning the prestigious Humboldt Prize, the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Excellence in Engineering and ICT, and the ACP Research Excellent Award, and as well as fellow of many, many uh, academic institutions. He appears regularly in global media, including ABC, BBC, CNN, NPR, New Scientist, and many others with a profile piece in the New York Times featuring his prominent work on the campaign to stop killer robots, which has earned him the uh, accolade of being banned indefinitely from Russia. He is author of four books on AI, with his most recent, Faking It, Artificial Intelligence and Human World, just out. In this episode, we dig into the themes of his book and looking at particularly that what are the differences between human and artificial intelligence, the real distinctions, what is our human relationship to machines, how it is we can amplify our capabilities uh, using AI, and making the right choices in this world. So please stand uh, by for a wonderful conversation with Toby Walsh. Toby, it is absolutely awesome to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to see you again, Ralph. So, Toby, you have uh, just coming out with a new book, Faking It, and uh, which I think gives some really powerful insights for people into understanding where AI is today. And I suppose one of the interesting things is you started the story saying, you know, you questioned whether artificial intelligence was the right term, and then you came to the conclusion that it is a, a good description of what it is we're dealing with. So how did you uh, come to sort of evolve your thoughts about that? Well, it's, it's a name that comes with a lot of baggage. I mean, it was invented by John McCarthy in 1956. Uh, I had the pleasure, indeed, to, to know John McCarthy. Um, and he, he came up with the name, as far as one could tell, because it was just different to anything else that was in, in use at the time. Um, it was not cybernetics, which might have been the name chosen. Um, and um, it's a name that 
is problematic. It comes with quite a bit of baggage. Um, you know, it's an invitation for people to make jokes about natural stupidity and, and, and other such things. Um, and I must admit, I remember in the early days of AI, when I told people I was doing AI, they thought I was doing artificial insemination. So um, confusion as, as uh, intelligence is not a very well-defined concept itself. So naming not something artificial intelligence is, um, is problematic in that sense. Um, but over time, indeed, just in the last couple of years, I've come to increasingly think, actually, fortuitous, it was quite a fortuitous, quite a good choice. Um, because, I mean, it is, I mean, of course, it is about trying to build intelligence in machines, replicate the sorts of things that humans do that require intelligence. Um, but that other word that's there, that doesn't get as much attention, I think, from most people, the, the artificial world, I think actually has a really important role to play. Um, that. Uh, artificial intelligence is going to be quite artificial, quite different to human intelligence. And I mean, one of the arguments in my book, uh, faking AI in the human world, is that is that we is that we're going to be um, increasingly fooled and deceived into thinking it's like our human intelligence. I mean, that's a that's a natural conceit. I mean, because our experience of intelligence is the one that uh, we get when we open our eyes in the morning and start thinking. Um, and so it's, it's natural for us to, to suppose that, that artificial intelligence might be like human intelligence. But certainly the, the early indications that we've got from the limited AI that we've been able to build so far is that it's very different flavor. And there's many reasons to suppose it's going to be very different. Um, you know, there are a bunch of really important characteristics that are going to be different. Um, uh, AI works you know, in, in a different fashion. It's not, it's not evolved in the way that human intelligence works. It, it works. I mean, it has a number of natural advantages. I, I would, uh, you know, offer. Um, it's going to work at electronic speeds, not biological speeds. Yeah. Uh, circuits work in the, the millions of billions of instructions a second. The brain works in the tens or hundreds of instructions a second. Um, it's not limited by, you know, our, our brain is limited by the size of our, our our skull. We can't have any larger brains and be born. Um, uh, artificial intelligence is not limited in, in we can you know just connected up to, to more and more memory. There's no limitations to memory. Uh, it doesn't have to forget things. You know, certainly as you get older, you discover you there's more things you've forgotten than things you've ever remembered. Um, so there are a number of characteristics that might suggest that it will be different. And certainly, the way that AI works today seems to be a different flavour. Um, you know, there's some really you know, fascinating examples. So you could you could take computer vision systems. That, that's an example of AI. Um, and there are what, what are called adversarial examples. There are there are ways of fooling uh, computer vision systems, um, just like there are ways of fooling human vision systems, right? So, mentally, you know, uh, optical illusions are a catalogue of ways that you can fool the human vision system into seeing things that aren't there. Well, you could do the same with computer vision systems. But you know, what's interesting is the computer vision systems uh, are fooled in completely different ways. I mean, I can take a, a picture of a stop sign and give it to an autonomous car. I can change just one pixel, and it becomes a go sign. And you, as a human looking at the image, you can't even see the pixel that's been changed, and yet you fooled the computer vision system. So it's clearly seeing, understanding the world, perceiving the world in a completely different way than the human vision system is working. Um, and so it's, it, it's easy for us to be fooled by that and to think, well, it's going to work in the same ways, and think that AI is going to be like human intelligence, whereas actually I think it's really important to remember it's going to be quite artificial. Yes, yes. I've, uh, I and some others have suggested that uh, the AI could stand for alien intelligence, as it is 
you know, in some ways intelligence, but it's uh, it is alien to uh, human intelligence. It's, as you say, a completely different form. There's, I think, one other really important characteristic to point out as well, um, because again, it's a source of a, a huge amount of confusion, huge amounts of fear, which is that certainly the machines, the AI that we build today, has nothing like sentience, nothing like consciousness, and that, in that sense, it is quite alien, and because. We're not used to it, intelligence being disconnected from consciousness. It's you know it's an intimate part of our intelligence, um, and and a part of you know the animal kingdom as a whole. Right. So the other intelligent, we're not the only um, conscious, sentient, intelligent life on the planet. Um, but we've we have got something that you know I think alien is quite a good way of describing it, which is intelligent, but not as far as we can tell, um, at least today, in, sentient in any way at all. Yes, well, this comes back to the, the definitional issues around intelligence. It's kind of almost it's uh, misleading to use the term because no one has really ever defined it properly that I can find or in any way that we can agree on. But I guess the, the, the theme of your book is really that we have this, let's call it alien intelligence or different intelligence anyway, but it is pretending to be human intelligence or people are trying to make it out to be like human intelligence so that we start to, as you say, get misled to thinking that it is conscious or thinking that it actually is you know, intelligent when often it isn't or that it is purporting to, in many ways to be not what it actually is. Yes, well, there's a natural conceit. I mean, we, we do that all the time. We we project ourselves onto inanimate, non-sentient, uh, things and so that we do that unsurprisingly with with AI, but uh, in, it's also in, in some cases more more conscious and in, indeed I mean one of the arguments in the book that in some sense it's an original sin it goes back to the very beginning of the field I mean if you go back to the beginning of the field um, the very first person who who you know arguably thought about building thinking machines was there was the remarkable Alan Turing uh, who invented computing. Um, and wrote what, what is generally considered to be the very first scientific paper about artificial intelligence, uh, where he talked about you know well, what happens if we do build machines that might be intelligent, and proposed what's now known as the Turing test, uh, what he called the imitation game. Um, and, and many people have heard of this. The idea is that is that he said, well, it's it's a bit hard to to answer the question, you know, is a machine intelligent because we don't know what, as you said, what the word intelligent means. Um, and so he suggested rephrasing it as, well, um, if you can't tell it from something that's intelligent, then you might as well say, you know, this is a sort of Occam's razor, you might as well uh, suppose it is intelligent. And he proposed this idea of the imitation game, now called the Turing test, which is you would sit down, have a conversation with the computer and, and a person at the end of a terminal. And if you couldn't tell who was the computer and who was the term and the person, then you might as well say that the AI was intelligent. Um, and if you actually look at that uh, the, the, that idea, well, that's that's a game of deceit. The computer is trying to pretend to pass for human. And, and you know, in, interesting enough, Alan Turing proposed as uh, you know an example set of questions that you might a, a judge might ask in performing one of these tests. Um, and the and the questions were all about deceit, about pretending. For example, the computer would pretend to make an arithmetic mistake, so you wouldn't think it was a computer, but would think it was a human. You would. Um, uh, you would ask uh, you know, questions that, that that only humans would, and pretend that only humans would not know the answers to. Yeah, no, that's that is interesting. And in fact, as you say, you know, a Turing test is is kind of the reference point, and it is essentially deceit. And that that seems to have 
you know, it's it's really come quite clear through your book that it is this uh, almost every aspect of AI is in a form of deceit, as in faking being a person. Uh, you know, the the way <laughs> the way that many companies are. Uh, pretend that they are AI, but actually have humans uh, doing the work and uh, many, many, uh, or I suppose, you know, the the faking creativity in various guises. So it is a relevant frame. Look, can I give you a, a fantastic, a fantastic, really, really topical example, which was ChatGPT, which, um, you know, it's a, a wonderful example. It's a, it's a, it's a, a very impressive tool. Um, it's remarkably fluent. Um, but, um, you know, there's a couple of bits of design that actually really do for you. So that when you, if anyone who's used ChatGPT, this this chatbot AI chatbot that's captured people's imagination, you know when you sit down and use it, um, and um, when you type in a query, you say, "Write me a poem in the style of Shakespeare," you know about my um, about my dog, and it will go off and do quite a good job of that. Um, but first of all, um, when it it, it blinks and it and it as though it's thinking at you, and then it types out the answer, types out the poem, you know, word by word, as though it was a human typing. The reality is actually it's got the whole answer in a flash. It could actually just flash it up on the screen. It's, it takes milliseconds for it to generate that. It's not doesn't actually have to write it out slowly like a human. Um, but that is a bit of a deceit. I mean, it's a beautiful design choice which makes you think. Well, it's bit like a human who's talking and typing the answer out to me. Um, and it's not surprising that people are fooled by that. Yes, yes. It's, you know, and as you say, there's many ways in which AI is designed to, to uh, make us think of it as human, to anthropomorphize it. Yeah. So one of the very interesting examples you used was of an a AI patent generator called uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. D a b u s Dabus. Dabus. Where it's yeah the the person who created it uh, said that it uh, essentially was an AI inventor and tried to patent uh, it in the names of the AI. And you pointed out that in fact you know of course the person invented the uh, the system and it was really just an assistant to him. So there it was a human. And a plus AI endeavor, as opposed to something which you could attribute fully to the AI. Indeed, yeah, it's a very interesting example. There was a court case brought in the US, in, in the US, and, and one in Australia, where uh, briefly before the uh, the initial judgment was overruled, um, the AI was actually allowed to to be named on the, the patent as the inventor. But that now has been overturned, and uh, at least in the US and Australia, again, we're returned to the place where only humans are allowed to be named as the inventors. Uh, but the system is, as you say, it's, it's an interesting example of how humans can be um, helped. You know, these are really powerful tools for helping people do things that we re you know, initially thought required um, you know, quite a bit of intelligence. You know, coming up with nothing, perhaps you know, more uh, endomatic of, of you know what in, what is something that's intelligent is to is to come up with something that's patentable. I mean, you may, there's a there's a, a certain mark there that it must be. Um, novel um, and done something truly creative, otherwise you wouldn't be allowed the patent. Um, and Davis came up with a couple of, helped uh, Stephen Tyler, the, the guy who wrote the, the program, to come up with um, a couple of ideas that have um, patents have been filed for. Um, uh, a fractal light, so the idea is that um, 
you turn this light on and it flashes with a, in a fractal way, which if anyone knows anything about fractals is that um, it doesn't have any repetition in it. It's a, it uh, the, the frequencies keep on changing and that will, that will attract our, our attention because it's not going to be flashing in any, in any, in like a lighthouse in any rhythmic way. It's actually going to be um, disturbing our, our um, mental perception of it and so it will actually be quite a good way of attracting people's attention and then and then another example was and then interestingly yeah, both, both fractal inventions a fractal container and the idea is that the surface of this container would have a fractal um a dimension to it um and again if you know something about fractals you know that that, um, that means it's going to have a huge i mean it's truly fractal in fact infinite surface area um and so if you want to have and something where you can um heat up uh, you know uh, a container very easily, um, then having a, a large surface area to the volume would be very, very useful. Um, but these, both of these inventions, um, what's interesting is that, um, yeah, and, and this is these aren't the only AI programs that have been used by people to help invent stuff. Um, it, what what people do is that they they get the program to to define what's what you know what you might call a design space, you know, a set of a set of ideas that you building blocks that you put together. And of course, the great strength of a computer is that a computer will put, you know, be very exhaustive and do things um, in all the possible ways. Um, and you know, maybe our um, our human intuitions will stop us from doing some of the more extreme, unusual ways, combinations of putting these things together. But the computer, the beauty of the computer is it won't it won't be inhibited in those ways. So it puts all these things together in interesting ways. But the problem is, it's, it's a huge, actually infinite design space, and um, you've got to tame it in some way. Um, and you've got to say, well, well, what are the interesting ways of putting things together? And then we come to this, you know, this ill-defined word, interesting. And this is where it was a, a nice um, synergy between the human and the AI, which was that actually it outsourced the idea of saying, what's an interesting, promising direction to follow? If I'm trying to build up this idea, it's going to be a, a fractal something, a fractal container, or a fractal light, and, and he's, you know, he's pushed it in those two directions and then it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's explore a bit more about, you know, what way is the light fractal. Um, and he kept on um, deciding which of the, which of the many possible combinations of concepts that he was trying to put together to go off and follow because it was, you know, it was a hugely branching, in fact, infinite search base to explore. And, and so it was, you know, playing to the strength of the computer is exhaustive as his ability to, to put things together irrespective of how silly they might sound. I mean, then the human um, who was bringing the judgment and the taste of what might be interesting, what might be a promising direction to follow. So, I mean, this is, you know, in a way describing combinatorial ideation. So, yes. Terry Mullis, who uh, won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for inventing uh, PCR, um, you know, said, you know, basically there's no new ideas, it's just combining them in new ways. And if your brain is not too straight lace and it sort of goes in different directions it suddenly can draw some connections and that's what inventors do and that's what creative people do but large language models it turns out are very good at uh, because of the scope of what they're being trained to be able to find different things and see how those combine indeed and you know what one of the important characteristics of a large language model if you play with them you start to quickly discover is that they're, they're stochastic actually slightly random that they they say things that are probable um, but they don't say only the thing that's most probable, because actually they'd be very boring if they did that. Um, so they'll, they'll, if you run a large language model a second time, it will say something slightly different. Um, and again, um, that's an interesting, an interesting design choice. So 
um, there are these probabilities. You know, the large language model is actually computing the probability of you know of this sentence, um, and there are other ways, perhaps, of finishing that sentence. And an interesting design choice is they didn't. They chose uh, you know OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, chose not to surface those probabilities. Which has led to one of the problems that we have with large language models, which is people say they, they hallucinate, make stuff up, um, and they do such, so in a really confident way because they chose not to tell us those probabilities. They could have said, oh, I'm really 99% certain of this, this, this sentence is always going to finish this way. This is highly probable. This is likely to be true. Or as opposed to this one's a coin toss. If you run me again, I'll give you a completely different answer. And they could have, you know, color coded or done. Um, and indeed, I, that's, there's some new large language models and starting to do that, things like put color codes to, say, to, to, to give you a clue as to which things are, are absolutely certain, which things are, are less probable. Well, a long time ago, I talked about the idea of a serendipity dial for recommendations. So you, either you want uh, no, for, no accidents or lots of happy accidents. Uh, you have lots of randomness in what you are suggested. So I suppose that's analogous to temperature as it is used in OpenAI or other computers where you can actually vary how random or otherwise the the outputs are, which so that can be a choice, and depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. Yes, uh, uh, and, and you know, people, we're going to see, I think, a, a growing sophistication and personalization in the large language models that you can you can first of all change the way the style of, of the way they speak. You can fine tune them um, to, to speak in in the you know, train them on your emails and SMSs, and they'll speak like you. Um, but equally, in terms of the whether they're going to be you know, highly creative, much more stochastic, or actually much more you know sober and conservative in what they say, um, and so there are going to be these these dials that we're going to start surfacing that will allow us to make those sorts of choices. Uh, and in fact, I've actually you know predicted that we'll end up choosing our large language model and also things like their politics, right? So there's lots of choices which are um, you know political choices, social choices. Um, and again, you know, you can actually train the, the, the large language model to have a particular politics, particular, um, you know, political view to lie on a particular place on the political spectrum. Um, and so I, you know, predicted we're going to end up, you know, choosing our large language models like we choose our newspapers um, because they align with, you know, our personal politics. Very quick break to point you to AmplifyingCognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense making, and decision making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. So I'm I'm very interested in this idea of humans plus AI. So I suppose you've laid out how humans and AI are different, and how AI is not not human intelligence as we know it. But so when we look at the landscape of how humans or AI, well, let's say how AI can amplify the capabilities of humans. So humans want to achieve things. We've got different tasks or missions or intentions. So how can what are the scope of the ways in which AI can, you know, amplify who we are and what we can do? I, I think in, in, in many ways, and it comes down to the fact that AI is different to human intelligence and that therefore we have different strengths and weaknesses. So 
Yeah, we already recognize the fact that computers are much better at doing arithmetic and calculation, right? We've already outsourced. Yeah. I remember at school being taught log tables. I've never used a log table in my life. Totally, totally waste of my time at school, but um, you know, told me told me about numbers, I suppose. Um, because yeah, I've got a I've got a calculator on my on my watch. I've got a calculator on my phone. I'm never without a calculator, and the calculator is much better. Makes fewer mistakes and does things much quicker than I would ever do. Um, and so we can outsource those things to to computers. And um, but increasingly, we're going to you know find other things that that where computers do um, the things that that we outsource to them. Um, actually, what I take away from the success of large language models is that we've overestimated quite a bit of human intelligence. That there's a huge amount of human human communication, writing a business letter, which requires actually minimal intelligence. It's quite formulaic, and we've now taught those formulas to machines, and they're really good at that. Um, and I've written my last business letter. You know, I just put the four dot points into ChatGPT and say, write me a polished polite business letter that covers these topics. I mean, of course, the irony is going to be very soon, that business letter is going to land on the desk of that business. Um, and they're not going to bother to read it because it's, because it's too many words. They're going to put it into ChatGPT and say, summarize as four, as four bullet points for us, whatever Toby's just written to me about. You know, this goes to uh, information theory, uh, which Claude Shannon created, where it looks at redundancy. You know, what is it that you can take out and still retain the message? And uh, as you suggest, in a vast, you can take out most human communication and still get the message across. It, it does, but but to to, to to go back to your question, because I think it's a re- really important one, if you're understanding our, what's going to happen in the next century, understanding our relationships to the machines that we're building, is that, you know, they have, strengths and we have other strengths as well i mean that we we machines don't have our social intelligence they don't have our emotional intelligence it's not clear I mean, it's not clear to me that that you know that they, they that they necessarily will i mean at the very least they're uniquely disadvantaged in that respect because you know if you and i have a conversation um you know i can think well wait a second before i say that uh, if someone said that to me, how would I feel? Would I be a bit upset? I think, yeah, it's probably, I'm, probably I'm not going to say that to Ross then. Um, because I can reflect. I have, you know, the same emotional life, similar emotional life to you. I, you know, I share a similar biology, um, and, and, and therefore I, I can reflect upon that. Whereas machines can't do that because they don't share our biology. They don't have emotions. They don't have an inner life, um, as far as we can tell, um, like you and I. So that puts them at a real disadvantage in terms of, um, having empathy and emotional intelligence. Um, and yeah, of course, they can fake it, and indeed they already are. I mean, you know, if you tell ChatGPT that it answered the question wrongly, it say, oh, I'm very sorry, I won't do that again. But, uh, you know, the tenth time it says that to, to you and you realize it actually always doesn't make those sorts of mistakes, you realize, well, perhaps that's a bit vacuous, it doesn't, it's not really as meaningful as when a human who is going to be embarrassed and is going to, um, you know, follow up by, by actually not doing that again. Um, so I think, you know, there are places where, you know, clearly we're going to have um, u- unique advantages over the machine. Um, and, and those things actually often, those, those, those advantages, areas of advantage are actually the ones I think that in many respects are most important to us as humans. You know, we're at the end of the day, we are social animals. That's the most, that was the thing. Well, actually, in many respects, more than intelligence. That got us to where we were. That actually got us to be, for better or for worse, the dominant species on the planet. Was that we came together into 
tribes and then villages and towns and cities and did stuff together in a cooperative way. Um, and then, of course, you know, we invented language and, uh, and, and, and knowledge along the way to help amplify that. But it's the way that we work together that um, has allowed us to be as powerful as that we are. And it's the thing that, you know, I think in many respects um, gives us the most pleasure and satisfaction in lives. You know, if, if there was you know, a few modest gifts amongst all the pain of the pandemic, it was that we realized that, that coming together and being, spending time with people was really important to us. And if that was taken away from us, even though we had all these virtual tools that, that you know, that I'm now talking to with, they're not the same. You know, this would, I, I'd, I'd have much more, even more pleasure from our conversation if we're actually sitting in the, um, in the same room together. Um, hopefully one day that will be. Absolutely. So, so uh, it makes me think, so you know, the book was about faking it as it's essentially that artificial intelligence is being made out to be like human intelligence, sort of in many ways. And so I guess what you're suggesting is that we shouldn't try to, well, either, well, potentially even amplify the difference of artificial intelligence to human intelligence, not try to make it the same as human intelligence, but but to push it in a different direction because human intelligence, we've already got it. <laughs> why, why try to we emulate have. it? There, there are pleasurable ways to make more of it as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. So is that is that fair that we should be making AI different, try to make it more, more different from human intelligence rather than try to make it seem the same? Yeah, I think it's just two things. Well, one is that, which, which is that, you know, we should, we should try and amplify the strengths of, of each of the players in this game, right? So that also tells us that, you know, where we, sh where we should be focusing our energy, right? We shouldn't do that. No, there's no point trying to teach us uh, ourselves to be better calculators because machines are much better calculators. Um, that we should be you know, playing to our strengths and, and handing over those tasks that many of which we never actually like doing um, to machines that they're, they're, that they're better at. And, and the other, I think, really important um, follow-on is that we should also be careful to distinguish AI from human intelligence. Um, and so, for example, you know, one of the ideas in the book is this idea of the Turing red flag laws. This, this is named, after, obviously, again, after Alan Turing, who we talked about earlier, Red flag, which is a homage to the red flags that people used to have to walk in front of motor vehicles when they were first invented, um, to warn people of this strange new technology that was coming around the corner that might startle the people on horseback, and um, and we needed to be um, warned that there was this strange new technology that was entering our lives that might cause um, potential harm, as well as you know significant benefits. And similarly, I think we should have red flags over AI. So, for example. Um, if you ring up a, you know, a, a business and it's not a human in the call center, but it's an AI that's answering your, your call, which is increasingly going to be the case, and increasingly it's going to answer your call in an inter interactive way, where it's actually responding. You know, it's not the telephone tree that it is today. It's literally going to be listening to what you can do, what you say, and actually responding in, a, in an intelligent way to that. You should be told that. You should be said, because you know, there's, there's a, a real deceit going on here. And the most valuable thing that, that we have as humans is our time. Um, and infinite amounts of that can be wasted by the machines. But I think you know, we have a basic, a basic human right to know whether it's another human um, and therefore someone you should be treating with you know, kindness and respect and, you know, uh, or, or a machine. I mean, there's, there's, there's that, 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 you know, 
That challenge, I always wonder whether I should tell to my daughter whether she should say please or thank you to Alexa. Because on, on one level, you shouldn't, because it's completely wasted breath. You're wasting your time. Alexa doesn't care. You know, Alexa's not, it doesn't have any, there's no, no, no caring in Alexa. There's no, there's no point for you to say please or thank you to Alexa. But, you know, what does it say to us? What does it say about us if we end up in a world where, where we're commanding machines and, and, and maybe we become less, we say less please and thank you to humans as a consequence because we get out, out of the habit of saying please and thank you. So, you know, I still say to her, she says, please, you should say please or thank you, even if you think it might be a computer. Yes, yes, this is one of the modern uh, etiquette dilemmas. So, yes. so just to round out with a, a bit of future gazing, so we'll, we'll have AI, which is better than humans in a bunch of things. Hopefully there's some things that humans uh, continue to be best at. And there's uh, many, many things where humans and AI will come together, where, as you say, each play into their strengths. So what, what should we be looking for? How is it that we can shape this evolving world in a way that um, serves us best? Well, I, I would add a third category. There will be things that machines do better than humans, but we will still only have humans do them. I think it's really important to realize that there are things that if we handed them over to machines, even though the machines would do a better job at those things, I'm not sure that that's the, I'm, I'm actually pretty convinced that that's not the sort of world that we should be in. So as an example, um, you know, there's some pretty high stake places where, where potentially we already, people are starting to think about, you know, replacing humans with machines and making sentencing decisions, um, making decisions about, um, about welfare payments, making decisions where uh, I'm not suggesting that we might not include machines to, in the loop to help us, you know, sift through voluminous amounts of information. But removing humans completely from those sorts of decisions, I think, will take us to the sort of world that people like Orwell have warned us about. I, I don't want to uh, wake up in a world where, you know, the computer judge that says, well, Toby, you're going to jail for, for six years. Um, I want to be able to throw myself at the mercy of a human, a human judge who might understand the circumstances that led me to that, that sad situation where I'm now standing in front of the judge facing the prospect of a long jail term. Um, uh, uh, and I don't think, um, you know, I suspect most of us don't want to wake up in that sort of world. So you know, even if I could put, you know, demonstrable evidence, you know, with, with the, the machine was doing a much more, systematic, a much more reliable job than the, the human judge, because, you know, let's, put, let's be frank here, humans are terrible making decisions. We're full of subconscious and conscious biases. Um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful study, somewhat disputed study about Israeli judges, and you're more likely to get parole um, if they've just had their lunch or if they've just had tea, than if they're just about to go for lunch or tea because their blood sugars are low. And we all know that people are like this. Um, much, but I'm, nevertheless, I'm still prefer to throw myself at the fallibility of that decision making, and end up in the sort of world where it's an algorithm without any empathy that's making those decisions. I think that's that's sort of world that most of us would like not to be in. So, so, yeah, uh, so as I said, I think this is third category where where we will decide not to hand those decisions to machines even though arguably the machines would do a better job. I think that that's one of the, what you've described as one of the fundamental junctures as to whether we, which, which of those paths we go down. And, uh, and I think it's, it's not, 
I, th- I think there's a very strong case. I think that aligned with a lot of your work to make sure that the humans are, are making the decisions that matter. So you have a book coming out shortly after we're recording this episode. Uh, so I'd love to, where can people go to find out about your work, your book? Uh, I think you, there's a number of initiatives you're involved in. So uh, we'll all be in the show notes, of course, but uh, you know, where, where can people go to find out, learn more from you? Uh, so you can find my book, uh, as well as my previous books, explaining the history of AI and where it got to today. Um, at all leading bookstores, they're um, sold by Black Ink. Um, the new book's called Faking It, Artificial Intelligence in the Human World. Um, but I did have a book um, before that looking at some of the ethical challenges that we've touched on today called Machines Behaving Badly. And one before that, which is trying to do the stargazing that we briefly did, looking into what would happen when machines might might match many human capabilities called 2060 year, 2062, which is about the year 2062, when, when machines might start to equal, in some sense, uh, uh, human intelligence, although you know, it's a much more refined problem there, as we talked about. There are different strengths and weaknesses that we each bring, um, different characteristics, because we, you know, we, we have quite different um, design. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I uh, at Toby Walsh on, on Twitter. Um, I tweet quite a, a lot, although, and sadly, Mr. Musk is spoiling the place, but nevertheless, there's nothing s- still quite as good, I think, for discovering what's, what, um, what's happening in this, in this uh, exciting world that we live on. Um, I have a blog, uh, The Future of AI, uh, by that futureofai.blogspot.com. Um, and um, uh, I, I do a lot of... Um, of media, so you're probably people. People complain to me. I'm always, always on the TV or radio. So, look out for me there. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights, Toby. And I'm very glad that uh, your humane perspectives and views are so influential today uh, as we collectively shape the future of AI. I think it's it's really important that we have uh, your your kinds of uh, voices. Um, so so heard in the uh, in the discussions the debates because that's that's going to push us more towards the the, the better path. Well, uh, thank you. That was very very kind of you. But I mean, the other important part of what you said there was as we shape, um, you know, and, and one of the messages of this book and indeed of all of my books is is about it's about making the right choices. And and so the reason I, I write these books is to try and help inform people so that we do make some good choices that the um, technology is not destiny. It's about making some good choices today. Fantastic. Thank you, Toby. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review. And subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.